If you have a copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to look at the book of Revelation with me. We're going to look at chapters 8, verse 6, through the end of chapter 11 today. So just remember in years past, I have gone to some resurrection texts before, but this year we're just going to keep trucking through the book of Revelation. So if you're just joining with us for the first time, I'm sorry, but at least you get a glimpse of what we've, doing, what we've been doing basically every week. So we're working our way through Revelation together. And secondly, I would say this, that remember, we talk about Jesus' death and resurrection every week. In the words of one of the church fathers, we are a resurrection people. We actually celebrate the resurrection 52 times a year. The reason why we worship on Sunday is because our Christ rose from the grave on Sunday. We don't worship on Saturday anymore. God's people have celebrated the resurrection 52 times a year since he rose from the dead. So we are not minimizing the resurrection at all, beloved. Just because I didn't pick a resurrection text today doesn't mean we're minimizing the resurrection. We're here. We are celebrating the resurrection together. All right, that's my little sidebar. So let's look at Revelation. Here's my introduction. It's going to be a little bit longer because I can't express this enough how much we need to take this in. So before I read Revelation, let's remember the first four weeks of January, we, thought, we talked about four preliminary principles. If you don't understand these principles, this book of Revelation will not make any sense or you will understand it in the wrong way. So I wish I could take these principles and drive them deeper down into my heart because I forget them. So I hope that I can remember them as you remember them and we can remember them together. Principle number one, if you want to understand Revelation, you got to get these four principles. Number one, we started Genesis 1 and 2. God always finishes what he starts. So he built us to love him, love one another, and love place. Rebellion and sin against him can't even stop that. So when we come to the book of Revelation, he is finishing what he started. That's the point of Revelation. God always finishes what he starts. He made you to love him, love people, love place. That's where it's going to end up. And our sin can't even stop it. Second principle, time. We need to think about time the way God thinks about time. We looked at Acts 2, Hebrews 1, several other places in the New Testament. Beloved, the end times started at the coming of Jesus. So Revelation is not a book that begins or starts to tell us about the end times or last days. The last days started with the coming of Christ. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Three, we approach the book of Revelation with humility. There are some things we know and some things we don't. We don't show up here every week to try to figure out every detail of the book. That's not why it was written. It was written so to give us images and pictures so that we would understand the main things of the book and the main message, not get lost in the granular minutia. For, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus actually accomplished something. He did it. His death and resurrection actually accomplished something. If you don't believe that or haven't wrestled with that issue yet, then the book of Revelation will mean something completely different. 
It'll mean that perhaps you're going to give way more authority or way more power to evil and wickedness than you should. It means that you might focus more on sin and wickedness than you should. Because if Christ actually accomplished something, if he actually stomped on the head of the snake, if he actually defeated death through his resurrection, then it means the rest of history is the working out of his victory. We're not waiting for him to reign in the future. He's been reigning for 2,000 years. Satan has been defeated in principle. And God has been working that out for the last 2,000 years. So those are our four preliminary principles. Here's where we've been so far. Revelation chapter 1, remember John tells us that this book, verse 19 of chapter 1, tells us about the past, the present, and the future. So if you've ever been taught something about Revelation that says it's all in the future, you've missed it. Chapter 1, verse 19 tells you it's about the past, the present, and the future. Chapter 1 also tells us that this book was written to us to be a blessing. So if you have ever ever heard anything in this book or studied from this book and it instilled fear in you, then you have heard false teaching. This book is not meant to work fear into you. It's meant to build your confidence. It's meant to bless you, to stir you up in your faith, to bless. Chapter 2 and 3. Jesus writes letters to the seven churches and talks about the things that they struggle with, same for us, that his churches will always struggle with. And then chapters four and five give us the one reference point for the entire universe. That is the throne, where God is and where Christ is and where the Spirit is. The throne room in chapter four and five is the reference point for the entire universe It's the one reference point we need for our lives. Nothing else really matters. Then we looked at the seven seals last time, and this morning we're going to look at the seven trumpets, but they're all connected. I'm reviewing this so that you can sense and maybe even feel the momentum of the book so that you can actually take chapter one saying this is going to be a blessing and carry that into two and three and carry that into four and five and carry that into six through eight verse four and carry that today into chapter eight verse six through chapter 11 so that you can positively be disposed to receiving a blessing from God, to be reminded about what Christ has done. If you do that, then we'll understand the book. Make sense? I hope so. It's really hard to see with the mask on. So I keep asking that, and then I realize, why do I do that? I can't see, and I can hardly hear what they're saying. All right, well, here's a sample from Revelation 8 and 9 and chapter 11. Listen to this. This is God's word. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. 
A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day, excuse me, might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And the fifth, chapter 9, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen with his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. We're going to stop there. How's that sound? Sounded maybe a little bit worse than last week? A little bit more confusing maybe? I don't know. Well, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Lord, strengthen our minds and hearts. Stir up within us the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Spirit, focus our minds, our hearts, our emotions, our will, our hopes, our plans. Focus all of that in us on Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Not a code book, a picture book. This is not a book to read and think about and crack the code. This is a picture book to give us images to stir up the imagination. That means that we got to do some more painting or drawing this week. Are you ready? That means in your mind, I want you to have like a blank canvas. And rather than trying to write propositional things down, we're supposed to image things. We're supposed to have images in our minds. So I'm hoping that you're still able to have a blank canvas that we can put images on from these chapters today. This is written for children. This is written for those who understand images and love to have their imaginations fired up. So let's think about images together. Here's where we're going this morning. We're going to try to see what John sees. That's our first point, seeing what John sees. And then our second point is going to be, so what? What difference does this make? What difference do these images make in my life? So let's try to see what John sees. This week, John unveils to us seven trumpets. So on this big canvas that you have, this blank, you should have some image of someone holding a trumpet, getting ready to blow the trumpet. 
Seven of them on your canvas, all right? In the Bible, trumpets are communicating a, 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 a way that God is getting our attention. Whenever you hear a trumpet, you stop and listen, right? You look. Trumpets are sounding a note to grab our attention. Sometimes that is for warning. Sometimes it is for encouragement. Sometimes it's meant to communicate that something absolutely amazing is going to happen. 1 Corinthians 15, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised. Like we'll hear the sound, boom, attention's grabbed, and then we'll see what's happening. Trumpets are meant to convey grabbing our attention, all right? So the first four trumpets are laid out in chapter 8, verse 6 and following. The first four trumpets are these. We got something happening on the earth. The second trumpet sounds and something is happening in the sea. As a matter of fact, it's like this gigantic uh, mountain catches on fire and then falls into the sea. A, a, a gigantic mountain. So imagine something like Everest. If it were to ever catch on fire and fall into the sea, do you think that would grab your attention? Yes. The third trumpet blows, and there is problems going on in the river and other springs. Fourth, something, this trumpet sounds, and something is happening with the sky. So you got the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the sky. So the first one, the trumpet sounds, and there is like hail and fire going on mixed with blood. Calamities everywhere. Natural disasters everywhere. The second trumpet blows and this big mountain falls into the sea. In the ancient world in the first century, do you realize how important seas were? Like the water, transportation, distribution of goods. They didn't have planes. So something happens in the water and it blocks traffic from flowing. Everybody pays attention. Everybody takes notice because it shuts commerce down. It shuts economies down. What does it take to grab your attention? My hunch is something happens with the economy and boom, you begin to pay attention. Does the Suez Canal sound familiar in the last couple of weeks? Over a billion dollars worth of goods? Do you think people paid attention to that all over the world? What does it take to grab your attention? What happens where you start to think, hmm, what's going on with this? What is this? How's it going to affect my life? Third, the rivers and the tributaries. Something happens with them. In other words, something is happening to our natural resources. Because let's face it, if you don't have water and you can't drink the water and you don't have access to water, hmm, there's a problem. There's a problem. Everybody needs water. Fourth, the sky. This one is interesting as the others are, but there's like a reduction of light, right? So the sun, the moon, the stars are all reduced by a third of their light. And even at night, it seems like the darkness of the night is somehow enhanced or reduced in some way. Remember, in the first century, People didn't have an iPhone or a Droid where they pulled up their GPS and plugged into a dress and it said, go here, here, and here. You looked at the skies and you looked to the stars and you looked for the sun because they helped direct where you are going. Again, 
The trumpet sounds to get your attention. People don't know where to go and have a hard time getting there and discerning what is the right direction because they can't see. Let's bring this home to us. We live in eastern North Carolina. We have beautiful sunsets and sunrises, don't we? We even have things that happen in our skies when a storm is coming, right? There are all kinds of legends and things that you hear about the purple in the sky. That's everywhere. Why? Because when something is happening with the sky, when something is happening with the heavens, it either rivets our attention or we think, ooh, this is weird. We need to pay attention to this, right? Again, the trumpet sounds and people's attentions are grabbed. Get it? That's the first four. The fifth trumpet sounds. Again, on your canvas, let's move to the fifth guy. Let's move to the fifth trumpet being sounded. This one, we have a star falling from heaven to earth. And this angel falling from heaven to earth looks like a star that's flashing. And and this angel is given a key. And the key is to the bottomless pit. And he unlocks the bottomless pit and smoke starts to come out. Quick sidebar. Do you ever remember a guy named Jesus talking about him seeing a star like falling from heaven? Satan, the angel falling from heaven, being sent out of heaven? Yes, this is a description of Satan. You can find it if you go back and read the other details. In this particular section, he is given the name of Apollyon, destroyer, destruction. And he unlocks the pit and smoke starts to come out and then locusts come out. And these are really interesting creatures. Again, go back to your canvas and see if you can image this onto the canvas. These locusts have the face of a human, the hair of a woman, and yet they have a scorpion tail. And these locusts are not allowed to damage the vegetation. That's what locusts normally do, right? Again, It's not literal, it's giving you a metaphor, it's communicating to you an image of those who are out to hurt people, because they're not allowed to touch vegetation. They have to go after those who do not belong to God and who do not believe in God. That's the fifth trumpet. The sixth trumpet releases three more plagues, and what happens here? A third of mankind dies. A third of mankind. And then, following that, we have an interlude. Now, this is changing our metaphors for a moment, but hopefully work with me here. This is like the director's cut. This is like an extra scene that we really need. You know, you expect just to motor through all the seven trumpets, but here, before the seventh trumpet sounds, there's an interlude in chapters 10 and the first part of 11 in which in this interlude there is a gigantic angel that has one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea. And this angel is like wrapped in clouds and a rainbow. It's communicating beauty, right? And that is going to give a significant message. And this angel talks to John and says, John, you need to take the scroll, representative of God's word, and you need to eat it. So John takes the scroll and he eats it. And what does he find out? It's bitter and it's sweet. 
Again, put this up on your canvas. John is taking the word of God into him. And if you ever want to read the word of God and not just pick verses here or there, if you want to read the whole thing that God says, all of his revelation, what you will find is that there will be things in there that will be bitter. There are things in there that are going to push against you. There are things that you may not like because it's God speaking. And when we form a God after our image, he always does what we want. But when we receive from God all that he is, some of what he says is going to challenge us. There are going to be things that are going to be hard for us to take in. Because none of us really likes to be a human being. We all want to be God. And we all like to think that if we could have all the authority, we would make much different decisions and better ones. Therefore, the Bible, God's word, is going to have a bitter taste to it at times. And it's going to be sweet. Meaning that there are things in the word of God that are more precious and more soul-satisfying than anything else. So John takes in the word of God with the church, and they continue to proclaim the gospel and proclaim God's word, proclaim God's truth, proclaim the good news. And yeah, you can read about it. They die. This angel that fell, that unlocked the bottomless pit, comes after them and kills them and then leaves them on the street so that those that don't like their message can rejoice over it. And then a voice comes and summons them to life and they come back to life and then they go to heaven with all of others watching them in astonishment and awe. There's no secret rapture. Everyone sees them go to heaven. And then we have the seventh trumpet. This is what we read. Did you catch it? What does this tell you? The kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdom of our God. Isn't that awesome? Where do we end? The seven trumpet sounds and we end again at the throne in which God's kingdom wins. It's beautiful. It's glorious. Read it. We read it together. Go read it again. Well, if you were able to catch some of that, then you were able to see what John sees. So what? What does this have to do with my life? Well, let me tell you this. It's not meant to instill fear in you. It's meant to be a blessing. It's not writing everything about the future. It's talking about the past, the present, and the future. It's meant to communicate that Jesus has accomplished something, that he's actually done something. It's meant to say do you really believe God is ruling and reigning? It's pressing all that into us. So let's get a little more detailed. What does this mean? So what? Well, let's start with a general observation and then two takeaways. Here's our general observation. We haven't said this thus far, so it's important to do it now. Do you notice that the number seven is important? Have you noticed that yet? The first chapter talks about the seven spirits proceeding from the throne to communicate the Holy Spirit. Chapters 2 and 3 talk about the seven churches that represent all of God's church. Then you have the throne room itself that has a scroll that has seven seals that need to be opened. 
And then today, the seven trumpets. Do you get the sense that the number seven is important? Well, there's more sevens to come. But these sevens are cycles. The sevens are cycles, particularly the seals and the trumpets and more to come. They're cycles that are moving us forward. When you go through the seven cycles, they advance our position a little bit further each time. They advance us a little bit further to, toward the finale. So the seven seals advance us all the way to heaven, right? And what happened when the seventh seal was opened? Do you remember this from last week? Silence, right? This week we go a little bit further. This week the seventh trumpet is sounded and we are at the throne where God is with his people and the kingdom of God wins. We're not at the new heavens and the new earth yet, but we're a little bit closer, you see? The seven are cycles that are taking us forward. They're showing us progress. That means that these sevens are showing us a vantage point, different vantage point, a different vantage point to view all of reality. Such that every time, and the trumpets and the seals are very similar. When we looked at the seals together, we looked at the reality of what the world is and how God's people are living in it. This time, what we get is a lot of darkness about the world, don't we? Calamity, disease, death. But we also get how God's people are living in the world. Yeah, they're still dying, sometimes persecuted. But until Jesus comes back, we're all gonna die, right? Let that sink in. This is reality. This is God saying, look, this is what has been happening, and this is what is going to continue to happen. Seven cycles moving us forward, getting us ever closer to the finale. That's our general observation. Now our two takeaways. Here's takeaway number one. Beloved, we are obsessed with wanting everything to be easy, and we need to be obsessed with reality. We are obsessed with wanting everything to be easy. And we need to be obsessed with reality. How many of us, when we go through difficult things, just try to ignore it or suppress it or push it down deeper in? We want to ignore stuff. We don't want to deal with difficult things. We just want everything to be easy. So some of us, that looks like packing down years and years of frustration, struggle, anger, resentment, unresolved questions, on and on. We just pack it down, pack it down, pack it down because we don't want to face reality. We just want things to be easy. And God is saying through giving us these images, no, you need to be obsessed with reality. You need to live in reality. Don't live in your own delusional world where you get to make up your own ways, where you get to define your own existence, say what's right and wrong for you and create chaos everywhere. Because if everyone does what's right in their own eyes, what do you have? If everyone gets to define what's right and wrong for themselves, what do you have? Chaos. Remember, we're individualizing ourselves to death, all under the guise of wanting everything to be easy. And we need to be obsessed with reality. Reality about this. We need to be obsessed with the reality that the world we live in is unstable. 
We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is radically unstable. There's disease. There is calamities. There is evil around. Sound familiar? That is reality. And to not face reality is to not be in tune with the unstableness of the world. And when we see calamities that happen and disease that happens, when natural disasters occur, when, um, when our natural resources are, are, are compromised, we are to remember that we live in an unstable world. And those things should fill our hearts with a sense of, hmm, something isn't right here. You should look at the world and see the instability and think, wow, this instability is crying out for restoration, for resolve, for healing. So we should be obsessed with the reality that the world is unstable. Second thing we should be obsessed with regarding reality, that evil is real. Remember, evil is real but it never ever gets the last word. I hope you believe that evil is real. I really hope you believe it never gets the last word because that's biblical. We've also said to you that God is pulling out evil by the root. Do you remember this? So since sin entered the world, evil is real and it's wreaking havoc everywhere. We're part of that. Ultimately, God is gonna pull out sin by the root. This is telling us what's happening in between those things. Until God pulls out sin by the root, and as we see evil in the world, we need to live with the reality that evil is limited. It is restricted. It is real. It doesn't get the last word. God's going to pull it out by the root. But until he does that, evil is restricted. Look at the first few verses we read in chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Did you notice this phrase mentioned more than 13 times, more than 10 times? I think it's 13 or 14 times. A third. Notice that? This happened in a third of the earth, a third of the earth, a third of the rivers, a third of the river, a third, a third, a third. Did you see that? When you read later on about the locusts being released, remember, a metaphor for evil in the world attacking people. Five months. Five months. Not six, that would be half a year, five months. You get to chapters 10 and 11, you're going to read 3.5 days, three and a half days, or three and a half years. That's not a full cycle of seven, completion, half the time. God is trying to get into our minds that evil is limited. Let's play weatherman for a moment. And all you math people, I really need you here. Are you with me? If the weatherman comes on today and says that there is a 30% chance of rain, please tell me what percentage is there that there will not be rain. Boom. A third of the earth is taken. The other two-thirds aren't. Evil is limited. It cannot do any more than God intends for his purposes. That is beyond us. But when you see the weatherman say that there's a 20% chance of rain, I sure hope you're making plans for the 80% chance that there isn't going to rain. Does that make sense? God is trying to get into us that evil is absolutely real, and one day it will be removed from ever, ever. But until then, it's limited. 
It's real. It's horrible. But it's limited. God has control and even works all the evil for good. Amazing. And we need to be obsessed with that truth that evil is real, but it's limited. And the third thing we should be obsessed about regarding reality is the judgment. These chapters are full of judgment, full of it. Not every little thing, not every little detail, but the note of judgment is strong. The judgment of God is real. God really does hate sin and rebellion. You got to get that down. We want to see justice in the world. Why? Because judgment is coming. Justice is always connected to judgment. If you want justice where there's no judgment, you don't really want justice. Justice is always connected to judgment, and God is the judge, and he is perfect. Let me try to make this clear and practical for us in our daily lives. And if you want to talk more about justice and judgment, I'm happy to. But let's, let's get more personal with this. If you have grown up in a situation in which you are super sensitive about what's right and wrong, I mean really tender. You have a very tender heart, a very sensitive conscience about what's right or wrong. Then for you, judgment has probably always scared you. You've probably always wanted to do what's right because you're afraid of what will happen if you do what's wrong. Well, I need you to hear this. For those of you that are super sensitive, the judgment of God actually shows how much he loves you. Because it was on the cross that Jesus endured the judgment that you deserve. It's on the cross that Jesus endured hell. He was forsaken by his Father. Beloved, he endured the judgment for you. Judgment shows how much God loves you. And for those of you that are super sensitive, be thankful for that, but tie that into Jesus. And see what he did, absorbing your judgment, facing hell for you. Take that in. Because God's judgment is good. For those of you that might be more skeptical, that you might think, I don't believe in a God of judgment. I don't think God should do that. I think he should just be loving. He doesn't need to judge. He just needs to love. His love is greater than judgment. Therefore, he doesn't need to judge. He just should, should love everyone and love everything in exactly the same way. And we shouldn't worry about judgment at all or think about it. God shouldn't do that. He's just loving. What I want to say to you among many other things that I can't today, right now, is this. Have you read the gospel accounts? Especially leading up to the death of Jesus? Have you read where the crown of thorns was put on the head of Jesus and pressed down so it was bleeding? Have, have you read the fact and thought about the reality that, that nails were driven through his hands and his feet? Have you read that? And that's just what was going on physically. If you're skeptical about the judgment of God, do you really think that Jesus didn't have to do any of that? Because let me tell you something, the fact that Jesus endured all of that, if you think that a loving God that doesn't have to judge could just do away with all that, you have absolutely 
gutted the depth and the costliness of love. So the effect of thinking that God should just be loving and not judging actually ends up diminishing the love of God of its costliness and its depth. You've just gutted it. And the effect of trying to make God more loving, you've actually made him less loving. Because we're supposed to personally see that Jesus endured those things again for us. His love was costly. His love was deep. And deep down in your heart, you want people to love you in a way that requires sacrifice and that costs them something. Someone that loves you that doesn't cost them a single thing, you know that's not real love. You know it. We need to be obsessed with reality about the instability of the world, evil, and judgment. Here's the second takeaway. We are obsessed with what is unstable, and we need to be obsessed with what is invincible. We are obsessed with what is unstable, and we need to be obsessed about what is invincible. When you go back through and read all about all the calamities and the plagues and everything that's going on, remember John? Remember John with the church is taking in the word of God and is changing him and changing the church? And in the midst of all that's going on, no matter whether it's a plague or a calamity or persecution or anything else, the church is proclaiming the truth? In the midst of all that's going on in the world, what are God's people supposed to be doing? Taking in the gospel, living it out, and proclaiming it. And we are obsessed. We are obsessed at what is un- with what is unstable. Beloved, let's review last week and add to it and plug in what, what we see in these chapters this week. Tell me the plague that wiped out Christianity. Doesn't exist. Tell me the army that's wiped out Christianity. Doesn't exist. Tell me the calamity that has wiped out Christianity. Doesn't exist. Tell me if Satan can destroy Christianity. No. Can death itself stop resurrection and resurrection power? No. Stop being obsessed with what is unstable. Evil is always going to be around. Stop obsessing over the changes that you see and the threats that you perceive. Stop obsessing over where you think the devil is most moving and then react by doing this over here. Stop obsessing over what is going to always be unstable. Assume that the world is unstable. Assume that evil is going to advance. Assume that there are going to be threats. Assume that changes are going to happen. And stop obsessing over it. Obsess over what is invincible. Obsess over the gospel. Obsess over Jesus. Obsess over his kingdom and seeking first his kingdom. We are so distracted that this headline comes up and this headline comes up and this law goes into force and this law goes to be debated and that is all we care about. 
We are obsessed, and we are so emotionally attached to that, and we should be emotionally attached to the gospel and the kingdom and Jesus. Be more confident in the gospel. Be more confident in the church, not because she's perfect, not that vantage point of the church. Be more confident in the church because it's the bride of Christ. You and I may die. That ain't going to stop the church from progressing. You and I are going to die. That won't stop the church from progressing. Be obsessed with what is invincible. And whatever is distracting you or grabbing your attention to pay attention to what's evil or changes that are happening or whatever, just be honest with yourself about that and deal with it. Admit it. And focus more on the gospel and the church and Christ. You see, where does this end up? Chapter 11, at the throne, right? Praising God, right? The elders turning, praising him who's on the throne. Who's, who? What's the one reference point for your life and my life? Oh yeah, the throne. What is it that really matters? Oh yeah, that God exists and he's ruling. Beloved, Jesus couldn't be at the throne if he didn't rise from the dead. Everything that we're looking at in the book of Revelation is entirely predicated on the resurrection. If Jesus isn't alive, he wouldn't be at the throne. If he's not at the throne, then we got no hope. In other words, to say it this way, if Jesus is alive, nothing else matters. If Jesus is not alive, nothing else matters. Take that in. Please, I'm begging you. What were God's people doing in the midst of all this? What are we supposed to be doing? In the middle of the Roman Empire, what were they doing? Well, they had radical views of marriage. They had radical views of singleness. They were serving the poor and going to those who were on the fringe of society. They were giving of their resources. They were planting churches. They were willing to die. They gathered together to hear the gospel and sing the gospel and live out the gospel. That's what they were doing. And then they were dying. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He came to this earth. God took on human form and pursued the outcasts, the foreigner. Me, you. And he gave of himself everything. He established his church on his life. The reason why God's people were doing that is because that's what they saw Jesus doing. Same for us. Our lives are patterned after Christ. Christ. 